Is the world on fire? Hello, y'all. Welcome to Is the World on Fire, a podcast created by students and alumni at the Croc School of Peace Studies at the University of San Diego. My name is McCoy Turpin, and I'll be your host for this episode. We will be joined by Dr. Austin Choi Fitzpatrick, a professor at the Croc School, sociologist and author of multiple books, including What Slaveholders Think, The Good Drone, and the newly released book, Wicked Problems. Listen in as we discuss the current state of the world, the ethical contradictions of change-making, and the relevance of peace studies in academia. Do you think the world's on fire, and what are you trying to do to put out those fires? Yeah, yes, the world is on fire. Um, Well, yes, the world's on fire. Yeah, the world's on fire. Yeah, the world's on fire. Yeah, so I th- I think that we, there's two different answers. The reason I'm sort of like, you know, thinking about this is that we are like beset and besieged by what seem like unsolvable problems, right? Absolutely. I, mean, I could go through this list and everybody listening would sort of nod their head and then notice like 10 things I forgot. Yeah. But we have like problems that can't get solved at the nation state level. We don't actually have any sort of like collective uh, action mechanisms that are regularly deployable to address things like climate change, for example. We've got like piecemeal mm-hmm. approaches. Uh, but what about like international crime? What happens when the United States illegally invades and occupies Afghanistan and Iraq? Can you take first George Bush and then Barack Obama to jail or to court or to some place that can hold them to account for, for their crimes? Yeah. No, there's not really a place like that, right? So we have these like wicked problems that are pervasive and in the moment, everything seems lost. But if we zoom out, this is, I'm still answering your, or not answering, yeah, yeah, yeah. here's the world on fire question. But the funny thing is, if we get, if we kind of zoom out, every single generation has felt that the world is on fire. Absolutely. And it's not to say that, this, that the world is not more on fire than ever before, but this sense of when we show up and we ask ourselves what's happening and what are we supposed to be doing here? That sense yeah. is pervasive. And I think that's an evergreen sense. And, and it's good, too. We don't want a generation to show up and think, oh, let's rest on our laurels. These are the good times. So we can just hang out here. Yeah. Um, what we want is people who show up and say, what's right, what's wrong, and how can we close the gap between those things? Mm-hmm. And so, yes, the world's on fire. Um, but in some ways, without diminishing the call to action, the world has always been on fire. And the challenge for humans has always been to act in that space. Do you think, think? Do you think there's like almost a problem with the way that certain auth- or certain people in academia and certain people that are controlling a lot of those narratives are trying to say that the world is as good as it's ever been. Status quo stops the ability for that action to take place or for people to want to take an impetus for action. Or do you think that energy is still as much there as it ever has been? I don't know. That's a great question. I mean, you know, there, there are, there are very good reasons to believe that this is a better time to be alive than other times we have recorded history of. Now, maybe there are times before recorded history it was much better to be time to be alive than now, but that's yeah. kind of a hard, hard argument to to sort of maintain since we know so little about, you know, based on historical records that we have. And Absolutely. I think there's a good reason to think that now is a better time than lots of other points in time to be a heterodox thinker. Mm-hmm. It is a better time than ever before to be a blasphemer. Mm-hmm. It is a better time than ever before to have ideas that are outside of the mainstream of your your community, whatever your community is. These yeah. are good times for, and I come from a long tradition of free thinking people, these are better times for free thinking than were 150, 250, 350, you know, 600 years ago, 800 years ago, 2,000 years ago. We go past about four or 5,000 years ago and we know less about how easy it was to be free thinking. Yeah. Um, 
But now is not a bad time to be a free thinker. Now is not a now is a less bad time to be a radically impoverished person. You know, global poverty levels at the bottom billion level have gotten better. Mm -hmm. Inequality is going up, and we're destroying our climate on the back of the economies <laughs> that have actually allowed those folks to come out of the most extreme forms of poverty. But the question is, what do we keep our eye on? And your question was not, is anything ever getting better? It's does recognizing things are maybe getting better in some areas draw attention away from the world being on fire? Yeah. And I think that's an individual case by case sort of answer. I like the idea of a ratchet. You know, you sort of, you know, the way that a ratchet works is you pull it until there's a click and then yeah. it stops the, the device you're, you're leveraging from going back. And then you pull it again and it clicks and you pull it again and it clicks. And what I love about that metaphor is that it's, it helps us to think about how there are gains that we achieve and more work to be done. Welcome, everybody. My name is McCoy Turpin. I am here with Austin Choi Fitzpatrick, who is a professor at the University of San Diego's uh, Croc School for Peace and Conflict Studies. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, I'm Austin Troy Fitzpatrick. I'm a professor here. Um, I've been here since 2015, and I came here from the School of Public Policy at Central European University. The start of my career there was a super exciting and cool place to be before shifting here in 2015 to teach at the Croc School. And in both of those places, I teach uh, classes on human rights for social movements. I'm a sociologist, but to work in places that take a broad view on the kinds of uh, approaches, tools, and objectives that we should have if we want to make the world a better place. And that's sort of like my, you know, the thing I'm the most interested in. I've heard you talk previously about a moment in your college career at some point, I don't know if it was graduate school or your undergraduate, where you started a, a revolution within your own um, university. And so what made you, how did you find that, that fire? What was it that made you act on that fire? I don't know what revolution you're talking about. Uh, I do you remember the details of this. I don't remember the details. That's why I wanted to get. Oh you my to lord! Talk about I, well, let me. So 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 let me say two things. The, yeah. the first is lots of young people like recognize something's gone wrong and want to know like how do we change this post haste because it's so clearly wrong. The, the challenge that older people then flag, people like me, mm -hmm. is a recognition of like how complicated that wrongness is. Um, we err, uh, I say we as like elder people, you know, uh, err by then saying like, well, you have no idea how complex it is. It's much yeah. more complex than you can ever understand. <laughs> well, then there means there's, does that mean there's no hope? Yeah. Right. And a young person says, but things are way more effed than you can ever imagine. Well, does that mean that, that like, you know, that the, everything can change right now. Right. And somewhere in the middle is your question. Like yeah. how do, how does that ratchet, you know, go click? So for example, real quickly, yeah. um, you know, I wrote, I wrote this book called What Slaveholders Think that was mm -hmm. looking at what does social movement organizing look like from a perpetrator's perspective. So I did interviews with perpetrators of human rights violations who are being targeted by social movements trying to change their behavior. Yeah. And I came away from that with this clear sense that there are way more, I want to say, pressure points or pain points for activists mm -hmm. if they knew what the full sort of uh, range of variables, contingencies and considerations that people they're sort of trying to challenge and whose behavior they're trying to change uh, if they were actually aware of all of those all of those variables and i feel like that's this missing piece for activists yeah. to answer your question i remember you asked me a question you said tell me about grad school so um, <laughs> so i so in grad school it was i there was this this uh, a not very important issue that we were yeah. not a huge social social important issue um that students wanted to change and i was uh, i think i was 
president of GSA at the time and the Graduate Student Alliance or whatever. And so I was saying to the dean, this is a thing that needs to change. And the dean said, this is really great. I really appreciate your voice. And I want to get this. I want to get your voice into the right spaces. And so that you can really like be part of this. Yeah. And um, and what happened was I then I joined committees and was part of committees. And I've wrestled ever since then with whether or not that's getting co-opted. Yeah. Right. Did I just get pulled into systems that are slow as freaking molasses where everything is really hard? Yeah. Uh, or did I actually get to, to come into the space where the decisions that get made happen that then affect the institution over longer periods of time? That's just like, like I'm, I'm ending my whole monologue with the answer to your question. Yeah. Which is, was, what, was, what was the good thing there? Was a good thing to have stayed outside of that system and to like sort of uh, organize for, for change? Or is it to sort of work inside that system? And I think those are the sorts of tensions that are all the time what we're being faced with when we recognize something about the world needs to be changed. And we feel like we want to do it now. That makes me think about something that I've had so many conversations with people where, um, for example, I have a lot of friends who are uh, activists in the trans community and they talk about how they're unwilling to be sort of in those conversations with perpetrators and in conversations with institutions because they view institutions as perpetrators themselves. And they say that those conversations, those interactions are themselves a level of violence that make it impossible for them to be able to ever reconcile past those differences that exist. So their solution is never engage and constantly fight, fight, fight. And I'm interested in what you think of, first of all, how do they have those conversations? And are, do you think those conversations will ever take place? Because interviewing perpetrators, that's probably a good perspective that you can take, but from people who are experience violence in those conversations and then i'll save the second part of my question that, yeah that's a so long yeah question. so that's so, so so the first thing i would flag instantly is the thing you just ended with which mm -hmm. is like positionality i mean the fact yeah. is that i'm like a cis white dude and i'm going into these spaces and interviewing people and then i bring that sort of like i'm not a survivor yeah. right i'm also not a perpetrator i'm sort of like this outside other which from a social science perspective means that i you know there's some methodological value to that having that kind of status they have a bit of an outsider status but to the point you're making it means that for myself personally this didn't involve any sort of it wasn't re-traumatizing it didn't it put me back into contact with folks who had actually um been hurtful to me or who had experienced complicated relationships with so yeah. that's the first thing to flag um, but then in terms of the point you the, the question you're making which is whether or not discourse is something that can be relied on to identify public goods in societies because i came up in a world where uh the assumption was about about democracy that the problems democracy had all involved obstacles to people speaking freely and being heard genuinely right yeah and and this is essentially what votes are a proxy for for measuring how people actually think because this was the enlightenment promise is that we're each a person with our own mind and our mm -hmm. own story and our own relationship to god originally but who is that, a person and so that yeah, so we can have that conversation <laughs> so um so we can we can actually talk if you want to talk about personhood uh, yeah person we, can have that, we can have a conversation <laughs> about personhood and, and artificial intelligence we'll go there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so um but the, but the puzzle then becomes if we think that people are whether you have a religious conviction or not, but instantiations of a significant of a significant essence and a significant, you know, sort of uh, own selfness. Yeah. Then what what people think and say matters, and then the currency in a democracy is what people think and say. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of ways, that's what the idea of open markets is. It's like we don't just buy and sell things because that's what the king wants. We just we figure out what people want in the market. Now that's yeah. gotten far from that in terms of how capitalism works. But to your question, we do not have 
mechanisms, I think, for understanding how society comes out the other end of big change when some people refuse to talk to other people. Yeah, that's complicated. And that's in terms of discourse. And the second point really quickly is institutions like are should we be engaging institutions or not? Yeah. Are institutions sites of violence or are they sites of, of are they mixed bags or what? And I my go to for this, I, you know, Roberto Unger at, at Harvard Law has this idea that institutions are calcified agency. It's like what gets left over when people take action. And yeah. I'm a fan of that. So I'm, a, I'm like, I'm a professor with tenure at a university and university is like 800, 900 year old, thousand year old <laughs> institutions. Yeah. And if you've ever been in one, they really feel like clunky and kind of old. And yeah. I like that. I think that's good mm -hmm. actually. And so I like it because it means if you bring change inside those spaces, it lasts mm -hmm. longer than you do. Now, whether or not that's a worthwhile investment for anybody it would never be my mind to say. Yeah. So there's so the question, like, is it worth changing institutions? I think the answer is yes, personally, because I think that's how our, our, our time lasts longer. But if one feels that institutions are doing them violence, yeah. then what am I going to say? Like, oh, well, sorry, that's what you've got to do, because that's the only way change happens. I, you know, I think that refusing to be part of the system is a perfectly legitimate alternative. That's really interesting. That makes me think about um, those who do go into those institutions, because there's a really interesting chapter in the Wicked Problems book that talks about being a survivor and becoming a leader of a large group of people who are survivors or becoming a voice for it within institutions. And within that story, there's a conversation that takes place where a survivor comes and experiences an event, an academic conference, and the person who is the leader, the voice of survivors in this academic conference finds disagreement from uh, their counterpart. It seems that the disagreement and what I what I could tell was almost a distancing kind of being pulled away from from sort of those survivor roots and assimilating into institutional roots. Do you think that's a real thing that takes place or do you think that it's necessary to have the people that have assimilated to those institutions to begin with? So, so two things real quickly. The first is that the Wicked Problems, your Society of Wicked Problems, and mm -hmm. that's a, a book that Doug Irvin Erickson and Ernesto Verdeja and I co-edited that's trying to talk, like wrestle with ethical challenges that emerge from, you know, sort of when we take action for peace, rights, and justice. And so, yeah. um, and then this chapter in particular is Min, Min Dang, who's this colleague of mine at the University of Nottingham's Rights Lab. And she is the founder of something called Survivors Network and yeah. is, is survivors of, of exploitation and abuse. And what she flags here really, I think, really, as you, as you pointed out really cogently, what she flags here is the challenges of trying to stand something up that serves others. Yeah. You just said, like, well, institutions. Well, we're trying <laughs> to stand up resources to serve others. Yeah. Is that what you mean by institutions? I mean, you're like, I mean, well, what happens when you go into institutions? <laughs> Do you mean a survivor network to support? Well, Do you see what I'm saying? Well, I'm playing. I'm, like, pushing yeah, yeah. back here because we it, it invo involves us having to wrestle with yeah. what we think it takes to make something that's bigger than just our individual commitment and drive. Mm -hmm. And if what it takes is, well, we need the resources to be able to pay stipends to survivors who go speak to nonprofits, yeah. or we need to have a policy so that when a survivor goes and talks to a nonprofit, the nonprofit pays them a stipend. Yeah. And then, and then, oh no, not only pays them a stipend, but then the survivor who gets the stipend isn't on the hook for the taxes, which could wipe out half of that stipend. Just figuring out things like that to create yeah. a form, et cetera, requires some institutional like organization that sure. has to last over time so that the form is updated 
when mm. things change. So we like to look at institutions as if institutions are these things that are organized around it is sort of hampering our dreams and stifling our emotions which yeah. is, or stifling our like imagination about what the world could be. Absolutely. And sometimes they are. But in case after case after case, institutions were created to solve collective action problems. Yeah. And in this case, in the case you're, you're citing, to solve collective action problems for survivors of exploitation. Mm -hmm. So the thing that the author, that, that Dr. Dang is wrestling with in this piece, as I understand it, is what are you going to do? <laughs> you know, yeah, no, it, you know? but it's question. like, what are you going to do? Yeah. Do you not then create a space that is actually organized around uh, collecting those resources? And just to, you know, back mm -hmm. to your example, the thing that she was being really kind of called out for, if I remember that sequence correctly, was for having res the resources necessary to do that, to create that framework. Yeah. And that was seen as somehow, you know, privilege. Like privilege. Yeah. And so if we think of institutions uh, as being places of privilege, which I'm not saying they're not, yeah. then it will exclusively mm -hmm. shape what we think institutions can actually do. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, institutions play all of these other really amazing uh, and positive roles, in addition to all of the negative roles that they play, because they allow us to harness people's energies and actions over time mm -hmm. and to, from, in a certain sense, step apart from the individual themselves in order to create systems that can outlast any one individual. You just made me think about um, one of my friends when I lived in D.C. and my roommates, Eliza Buckner. Um, if you're listening, hey, Eliza, Eliza. what's up, man? Yeah, I love you. Um, but she worked with a mutual aid organization in D.C. that took a gentrified uh, historically black school that was about to be well it was about to be gentrified and they were able to take it rebuild it into a center for child care and for mothers to be able to go to work she is an avid marxist so her first criticism was this is so neoliberalizing of people's lives why do these women have to go work and then she goes well it's not that bad for people to have the resources to be able to provide for their families and give their children childcare for free. And there's, it seems like there's always that weird kind of tension for activists and people who are trying to create change where like they feel like they're almost their ethics are being compromised when they're actively doing it. But then there's like, what, what is there bad about that situation? And, I don't know. It's, yeah, that, it's, weird, that weird tension is called reality. Called yeah, reality. Like, oh, oh, what is this weird tension I'm feeling? Yeah, yeah. No, this is, I mean, the challenge here is that these conversations all get easier. Yeah. If we have a switch we can throw that activates about 10 years into the other side of whatever revolution it is that one wants. Mm -hmm. That world is easier to imagine. Yeah. It also doesn't exist. But short of that switch, what we're, what we're stuck with is the real world, right? Yeah. In which people who we want to work alongside or we ourselves, we need shelter and we need modes of transport, forms of transportation. And I'm not saying anything about wants. I'm just saying like things we actually need, like, you know, food and shelter. Yeah. And so this, this is the lifelong challenge, I think, of, uh, of folks wrestling with or struggling for uh, change. Uh, and I, and, and that's a, it's a big puzzle and I'm third generation change oriented people mm -hmm. and I don't, and there's not an easy answer. What, what do you mean by third generation, uh, oriented change maker? Well, so, I mean, I'm the third generation. So, so I have previous generations in my family that have like lived radically different, lived lives that are radically different than the status quo. And I don't like this, my, you know, my parents are hippies and the hippie movement was great, you yeah. know, but it wasn't sustainable. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why it wasn't sustainable. But, um, you know, if you if anybody likes like the hippie movement or you find any sort of joy and encouragement 
in, you know, in the 60s, you can ask yourself what boomers have become and then ask like, okay, so how did that happen? One answer is they're evil. And the more likely assessment is that like life is complicated, decisions are hard, and um and they're evil. And and my my approach has always been there, but for the grace of God go I. Because it's easy to say, like, well, I never would have done that. You yeah, know? Yeah. Uh, did I also tell you I'm 44? So I'm like, oh, that's some of that stuff made sense. Oh, so it's called selling out. Oh yeah, yeah please, yeah, I have another. Yeah. So so those are real, those are real challenges. And yeah. uh, you didn't ask me this, but my unpopular opinion is that children are the mechanism whereby this process happens. Mm-hmm. If my kids are listening, I'm not talking about you, darlings. <laughs> uh, but I think that having to care for next generation orients the mind into the future in ways that are positive, but not so far into the future that they'll help other generations, just sufficiently far into the future that one's own self-interest can be maintained. But that's my that's my opinion. My opinion is, you know, it kills movements, children. That's, that's actually really interesting because you just made me think about a conversation I had with my father like yesterday where we were talking about like, when they die, right, what are the resources that are going to be handed down to me and my little brother? And I'm, I'm a neo-Marxist that goes, well, I'm going to redistribute as much as I can and meet my basic needs. And my dad looks at me and goes, what about your family? What about your kids? What about your wife? What about your, you know, or, you know, and that becomes that I've never thought about how that changes an activist perspective in movements. And I bet it'd be an interesting historical study to see which movement leaders uh, their their kind of like paradigm shift coincided with having children, right? And having people that they're responsible for. That's it. That's a good, that, we should do that study. That's a good study because I mean, because <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, who came to mind is like you know, folks assassinated by the state, you know, starting mm-hmm. with Jesus and onward, and uh, and those those are a gang of folks who tend not to have had kids, or if they did have a you know, if they did have a partner. It was somebody who was like waiting in the wings and then later was like an unsung hero that you hear. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah. You know, a whole lot of like, it takes a huge ego mm-hmm. to be the kind of person that does the sorts of things that the big figures that we think of as, you know, leading, leading revolutions and who are oftentimes men for all sorts of reasons. So yeah. there, so, so we've got this right. like gender dynamic and men have never mm-hmm. been good about, you know, caring for their offspring, I think, um, <laughs> like, like, and subscribe. Um, so, so I feel like this is a larger, there's like a gender dynamic yeah. here, um, and gender and power and history and all of that. If we could, but holding that to the side though, mm-hmm. I feel like there would be a good comparative study to say, okay, so who was it that had kids and who didn't have kids who got killed earlier by the state who lasted longer, who la- had more lasting change or more followers or that's interesting. <laughs> it uh, is interesting. Yeah. We'll, we'll have to do that study. Um, but speaking of studies, I want to change topics just a little bit to another line of thoughts that I I wanted to uh, engage with you on. One being peace studies as an emerging field. So one thing I've noticed is that almost no person that I've learned from in the peace schools that I've gone to was their main line of study, peace studies or conflict studies. It was always political science, sociology, anthropology, right? Some even did business for their bachelor's and then then did biology for their master's and then decided to study Derrida and do like prison abolition for their PhD, right? It's like the weirdest conglomeration of ideas and thought processes. And why, like, what do you think of peace studies as a field with all those ideas coming together and it emerging as more of a mainstream thought process? And why do you think all these different people are drawn to conflict analysis and peace studies? Because it seems weird to me. Yeah, that's a great question. So I think the cleanest and simplest answer is if you zoom out and you look at when new religious movements or new uh, movements of ideas, new intellectual movements or new disciplines Mm -hmm. or new concentrations or or foci emerge, 
all of a sudden you're interested in like what would what you know what would it mean if we focused on peace and not war and then you look around and then once you have that question you mm -hmm. then say okay good well, let's start a little institute and then let's hire all the people who have phds in peace right yeah. well there's nobody who has a phd in peace yeah so you cobble together from people who are in associated disciplines and i think that i'm i'm, I'm you know peace studies is now 50 ish years old 56 mm -hmm. years old and it's still, it's still in young that, it's still in that kind of infancy exactly yeah. where folks are there are now phds in this field yeah um but folks who are really doing this at the at the top are drawing from folks who got phds in some other place yeah and who are then usually attracted because we have some normative commitments I've got a degree in sociology and I'm normatively inclined. I'm not just here to to pursue something that's called social science and then just feed this into the science, you know, science machine. I'm here to like hopefully make the world a better place and for yeah. my my work to find traction in the here and now. That's not to say that people who are doing pure science and pure social science work aren't doing I I, I cite those people. Those people are, are, you know, are really important in our fields. Yeah. My point is not to to sort of cast aspersions there, but to say peace studies tend to attract people who are trying to do something a little bit different. Sure. So young field and a young field with normative commitments mm -hmm. is my answer. To your real question, <laughs> which is about um, peace studies, I'm ambivalent about peace studies. I'll, okay. be, I'll, be, I'll be frank. And entering it, I have had a hard time locating the wavelength on which it resonates since so much of it has been written by, uh, frankly, old white dudes. Um, about yeah. a world that's largely gone. And I'm not saying that wasn't really important work at the time. And this is, I, I can't be fired. I have tenure, so I can't be fired. So this is, I'm going I'm to use my tenure now. <laughs> Can I call a friend? Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to use my tenure now. So the, or the tenure protection, I guess what I mean. So, yeah. so peace studies, um, I keep being told that the work I do is peace studies. Mm. And I keep being, t and I say, well, I'm not really sure how you do social movements for human rights. Like, oh no, that stuff's peace studies. And I say, but I'm actually interested in how it is that contentious politics can can identify uh, interests that people don't really haven't identified previously in order to create conflict, in order to disrupt the status quo. Yeah. Uh, and then I'm told, well, that's peace studies too. And so peace studies has end up colonizing all these other disciplines yeah. in a way that says, oh, we're doing that too. And, and if peace studies is actually doing all of those things, mm -hmm. then I'm not sure what it's really doing, because if it's doing the thing that all the other disciplines say they're doing, then is it a new discipline or is it a framework? So in some ways, I, I feel like it might be more appropriate, a bit more modest to mm -hmm. say peace studies is an intention about means and ends. Okay. But then does it need to be a discipline or subdiscipline or an emerging field maybe it is a lens just like a feminist mm -hmm. lens or a queer lens that we then put onto our existing work and so when people say oh you're you do peace studies austin and is, is it because i do sociology with an eye toward means and normative means and ends yeah and if the answer is yes then like then we're all doing peace studies and mm -hmm. you have spent more time in peace studies than i have qua peace studies right so you can tell me um where is peace studies headed well, I mean, I asked the question because I find myself in a weird situation there. I, I like to read a lot of people that are philosophers and sociologists, and I, for some reason, am drawn to peace and conflict resolution and analysis as a field of study um, because it's so interdisciplinary that I can kind of combine everything that I like about all those other people. Because when I was reading The Wicked Problems, just the, just the table of contents, a lot of my old professors were in 
the table of contents. I'm Julia Shedd, Susan Hirsch, and obviously Doug, who is one of my favorite people up, on the Doug? face of the planet. Yeah, What's up, Doug? Um, but I thought it was, I just didn't know how they all fit together. And I get that the point of the book is it's not actually a cohesive. Oh like, yeah. Yeah. Like I'm book, ready for this. Yeah. But, you know, but it's a lot of different ideas and I'm, I don't know. It, it to me, it was such a weird combination of people that I knew, especially like Phil Gamagalian too. He's a professor here as well. Like very interesting combinations of thought. He's a complete pessimist when it comes to the most of these things, but he's in the peace field too. So what, you know, what gives, man? Yeah, what yeah. gives? <laughs> so, so, the, so the the reason it looks like that is because we were really trying to, and I don't, I, I want to like share credit and mm-hmm. and and with and hold blame for myself, but like really trying to push the envelope on where we think peace studies is. Yeah. Because my read, again, as a bit of an outsider, my read is that for forty or fifty years, uh, peace studies was focused on, um, you know, a couple of different veins of it. But one important strand is focused on international war and interstate war and interstate war and violent conflict. And a lot of that time was spent in that field focused on places that were not the United States. And so (laughs) then the question becomes, um, what good is it to have a theory of intrastate conflict that doesn't account for Jim Crow? And that's the that's the dilemma when I look at peace studies and people say, well, you're peace studies. Then I kind of wonder what is it all that peace studies encapsulate? So there's some there's something like a unlikely collaborators, you know, unlikely fellow travelers vibe that we're hoping to send off with the book. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Which is I hope then gets read by peace studies, people trained in peace studies like yourself (laughs) who are like, what makes this peace studies? Yeah. That's the question. So Mm -hmm. if we're going to go forward into a world that has peace studies as a emerging, let's say, disciplinary kind of kind of space that has its own PhDs and has its own journals, but the book is meant to sort of help us wrestle with that. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. Austin Troy Fitzpatrick, everybody. Peace. Thank you for listening to today's episode with Dr. Austin Troy Fitzpatrick. Before you go, we want to hear from you. Share your questions, stories, or ideas on the fires you see in today's world. Contact us on Instagram at Crock School or via email at istheworldonfire at gmail.com. And let us know, what is your fire?